0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of
1: the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcast. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.com.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to our newest episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. I'm here today with Alina munju Pipidi, a professor at the Hurdy School of Governance in Berlin. Alina, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Uh, Maybe I should just uh, begin the interview by asking you a little bit about your own background and your interest in the field of corruption and anti-corruption. How did you come to this field? When did you start working on it and why?
1: Well, I started working in the early 2000s due to a EU project, uh, which was a survey in five Southeast European countries. But my uh, interests were actually raised earlier. I had a revolutionary biography. I was 25 in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. And out of the sudden, while being enrolled in a PhD program in social psychology, I was also a journalist. But of course, you couldn't be a journalist under Ceaușescu. So overnight, I became one of Romania's prominent and very popular journalists. And among other things, I was a person who had the honor of firing the Ceaușescu's anchors from Romanian public broadcasting when we finally won were some elections for, for anti-communists. And in those years, I actually, as a very young woman and still a PhD student, I was the editor-in-chief of Romania's investigative newspaper, which had over 100,000 circulation. So, in fact, I worked with investigative journalists in an environment where compromising documents were leaking out and the former Secret Service Securitate was still very strong. So I am, you know, a full-fledged journalist who later on, you know, also work for different uh, for different Western media outlets. And at the end of this period I actually changed from social psychology. I was for a couple of years on fellowships at Harvard at Kennedy School. And when I returned, I created Romania's public first public policy institute. And this public policy institute of course tried, since there was nothing in the field, in a variety of areas and in every area that we were trying to build an evidence-based public policy and in fact to create for the first time you know, in a post-communist country which didn't have, exceptionally, no psychology and no sociology. In the 80s, Ceaușescu had forbidden the studies of this time. I mean, journalists, anywhere, anything else, or political science, they were 100% political, right? But not even sociology was left. He closed entirely down. So it was very complicated for us to put pieces together to make, again, an intellectual landscape where public policy could take hold. But even more complicated, as I discovered, was the fact that uh, due to this very late Romanian transition, we only elections the anti-communist in 1996 so we had a six years time lag compared to Poland Czech Republic and Hungary and the six years had been enough for state capture of post-Soviet type to take hold so in fact it was even ridiculous to attempt any kind of public policy in any field Uh, unless we solved first with the systematic corruption and state capture which existed. And to be very honest, we've been at this ever since. I mean, this is, you know, 1995 that I created the Institute. And um, we have been, since then, I have been, you know, chairing all civil society anti-corruption coalitions, registered a number of successes which I thought were forever, but in fact proved very, very difficult to sustain. So I have a history as an activist, uh, as a think tank leader, as well as um, as an academic, because I always continue to be an academic. And uh, I returned to academia permanently 10 years ago when I moved to Berlin.
0: So I want to ask you about your academic work in a moment, but, but let me just pick up on your description of your own experience in Romania in that period of transition. Uh, It turns out I didn't realize this. We're almost exactly the same age. And I remember also being around 25 years old in 1999. Of course, I was watching all this from a, a, a great distance. There was a lot of optimism. I think looking back, maybe naive optimism, at least in the West, that in that moment of transition, there would be a reduction in the corruption that many people thought was associated with the Soviet socialist style system, that democratization and marketization would unleash accountability and transparency and forces of competition and so forth. And maybe things have gotten somewhat better, but I think a lot of people, I think both on both sides of the Atlantic are maybe a little bit disappointed. You talk a little bit about, it might be too simple to frame it in terms of what went wrong, but to help people better understand the dynamics of the transition from the Soviet-era socialist system to the post, post-communist era and why the corruption problem and the state capture problem seems to be so severe and intractable.
1: Well, I think we came a long way, to be honest. I'm not among the most pessimistic people, but people have to understand that the Romanian revolution was very much like what Algerians in the street fear that their revolution is going to be. I mean, a revolution stolen from day two by groups which had prior understandings and which were Ceausescu's former secret service and a number of 2nd second, uh, second rank nomenclatura. So we, I don't think we had been two weeks into the revolution when the revolutionary committees formed that hook during that day and which therefore had very great legitimacy because what we did in the day when Ceausescu fled is that we elected instead of the party organizations, we elected whoever was more popular or more vocal or just present. But nevertheless, there were, you know, people elected by all of us under the name of National Salvation Front. You know, and two weeks uh, after that, the provisional leader of the time who was basically self-appointed, declared that all this structure is going to turn into a party and this pyramidal party which basically instantly replaced the Communist Party but which had tremendous legitimacy because it was practically elected on Revolution Day, I mean the day when Ceausescu fled, Was supposed to run in three months elections against other parties which were not yet born and which were supposed to be registered from then on and represent particular interests while this one seemed to represent like the general interest so you realize i mean this was a way of stealing a revolution which was absolutely masterful absolutely masterful by the way it was taught by one older you know stalinist thinker who had been uh, from khrushchev's times around and uh, this delayed us by six years. So, in fact, we allowed them to reorganize and consolidate because, of course, they won those elections. You know, the provisional president, Mr. who won with 83%. I spent the summer of 1990 in Switzerland not knowing if I'm going to return or I have to apply for political asylum. I was just postponing this because uh, when we seemed to win, they called the miners, which came three times in Bucharest. They completely infiltrated by secret services. So I published my... Uh, PhD dissertation actually was based in part with focus group with minors, which came and destroyed the university in 1990. So three years later, I I could go there and ask them, you know, why did you come? Why did you destroy opposition parties? Why did you destroy this new media? And so, you know, thinking that we come from this. I think we came a lot of way, I mean, so uh, basically this is a country which had no organized opposition, which had had the highest, the deepest penetration of the communist regime, 4 million members, you couldn't be a PhD student without being a party member and things like this, and therefore the simple fact that we built it into a democratic country, where nobody rigs elections, nobody even cheats elections in Romania, I think it's a very, very big achievement. The price, however, was the fact that they were very strong and there was no way for Romania to achieve its European integration except cooperating with these people, right? So we are in EU and we have a democracy because in the end of the day we had to cooperate with them. It was a national consensus. But, you know, corruption is the price. Corruption is the price of all this. And we have, I think, made gradual advance in corruption. And I think, you know, petty corruption and other things that were rife... Inherited from communist times are largely gone. All right, but otherwise, this particularistic structure of, of society, which you can see from public universities to government, it's not just, you know, something related to politicians. So it will take far, far more time to to clear. But that's the that's the answer. I mean, we had Romania like Albania had very different situations. They should not be judged by Central European standards. And seeing what situations we have, the fact that we nevertheless managed to, you know, Romania privatized all its utilities, we managed to cut most of its rents. And I think the lesson for everyone is that whenever a rent system is very well created and functional, whoever comes to government will tend to exploit those rents, not kill them. And communists, particularly very strong discretionary, invasive communists like ours, left around a fantastic number of rents, of which even the tiniest people, but who controlled an area, who were gatekeepers of an area, were able to exploit for their economic advantage afterwards. And we are still in the process of dissembling these rents. I mean, if you want to look at at an indicator, the indicator would probably be how strong state-owned enterprises still are and how big this sector is. I mean, in Romania and in Ukraine, you see that we're still fighting at this. But you also see it what we achieved with the anti-communists who won elections now and then. Uh, what we achieved is that we privatized a lot, we privatized utilities. I mean, Romania is more liberal than France is. The rents that exist you know, in the, in the energy and the private sector are far less and they contribute far less to political campaigns. In fact, they don't contribute at all. There's no land thrift in energy because it's all energy, banks, all these things, after big fights, they actually ended up to multinationals, which are not always clean, <laughs> you must say, but at least we removed them from this completely fused mechanism of business politics that we had in early 90s.
0: Now, in other post-communist countries, the privatization process that you describe was itself highly corrupted. Russia, in particular, is the famous example of this. Were there similar problems in Romania or elsewhere in that? region or was your country able to do this without the extensive corruption in the privatization or marketization process that we saw elsewhere in the region?
1: Well, the difference between us and, the, and Russia is that we started to privatize far later. As I said, we arrived only in ninety six. We managed for the first time to make this post-communist party lose power. And they didn't privatize very much. Of course, they thrived on conflict of interest. So what they did is that basically the kind of of embezzlement of uh, really this kind of parasitic economic structure when the the manager of a state-owned enterprise creates a private enterprise in the same time. And he transfers the assets from the state to his own thing. This we had absolutely a lot. And yes, this had a decisive contribution to creating a class of entrepreneurs who are entirely crony entrepreneurs. For 20 years, if you look at who the entrepreneurs are, the top 10, they all of them have some former uh, Secret Service Securitate connections or there are some top nomenclaturas sons in law which is very funny because basically the first rank had to, to step down, but they came up with people with different names, who are their sons-in-law very conveniently and those are. it's last year, I think it's the first year when in the top 10 we have two retailers. Otherwise, there are only people with from these areas which are, you know, economic areas which entirely depend on uh, on uh, privilege, legal privileges conferred by government on one hand one, 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 or And this, yes, we entirely lost the opportunity of creating um, this, you know, entrepreneurial class in the 90s. I think we recovered a little bit afterwards. But nevertheless, uh, the privatization, when it happened, it was brought by us, by the right wing, and we actually opened to the West due to ideology. Right, so it's only liberals, and that is very different from Russia. Only liberals who, who did privatization, and therefore we just opened it up. I'm not saying that bribes might not have been taken, but in the end of day, if it ended up with all the banks in basically the property of uh, important European banks and not our own people who siphoned a lot of money in the, in the very early 90s, that I think was, um, was a good achievement. So no, I wouldn't call privatization the most cruel process. I mean, the conflict of interest resulting from this coexist, this poor private-public separation in the 90s, that was very bad. But now this exists, you know, I mean, business people are not allowed to be in politics, for instance, in Romania. So now very clear and actually separations which don't exist in Western countries. I mean, Donald Trump would be inconceivable in Romania, absolutely inconceivable. There are very clear rules which wouldn't have allowed him even to run, you know. I mean, the idea that you cannot disclose... Your tax statements, I mean, you know, in Romania we were able to pass. I and my colleagues passed in 2004 as part of our successful coalition for claim parliament and taking the momentum, we passed a, a statement of, uh, of assets declaration which is extraordinarily invasive. I mean, you have to declare all your watches, all your jewelry, your wives. Also, all your accounts, you know, I mean, it's not about the, you have to declare absolutely everything. So we caught people, that our prosecutors were able to catch people because they were stupid enough to put their bribes in uh, in their statement of assets because there was no other else to put, you know, $2 million. So they had to put them there and claim it's a loan. But, you know, were, we had a point to start on. We had a place to to go after them. So I think there are definitely you know, some, uh, some achievements as well, but compared to how the problem looked at the onset when we were about to ask for political asylum, you know, think that Romania should have been like Belarus. You know. Mr. Ilyescu had three terms, three terms, a provisional one and two permanent ones, so in total he ruled 12 years. You know, I was 25 in 1989, and I was like 15 years older when we finally got rid of him, you know. And since we also had a very bad personal relationship, so I fought him all my youth. Uh, I was quite relieved when he finally stepped down.
0: So let me shift gears a little bit, because um, obviously it seems like your uh, trajectory in this area is very much inspired by your personal experience in the politics of Romania, your home country. But when I think about your scholarly work, which I've been able to, to read a great deal of, Uh, I would describe it as broadly comparative, both uh, across countries, not limited to any particular geographic region, and also very historical or historically informed. Can you talk at all about how once you widened your focus uh, beyond Romania or the politics of post-socialist Eastern Central Europe to think more globally and historically, did this alter or enrich in any way. You're thinking about the problem of corruption. Can you talk a little bit about the more global and historical turn in your own academic scholarship?
1: Sure, thank you for this. So uh, when I won, when we, together with some colleagues, we won this big um, EU funds, our first big EU grant, I was able to do a survey in five Balkan countries, uh, Southeast European countries. These countries were still, I guess, fairly similar. They were in the same region and they were post-communist countries. So, you know, what I uncovered seemed to me like the beginning of a theory of corruption, but it could have still been geographically limited. And the theory of corruption in one line was that basically it was mistaken to think about corruption as an exception, as a historical exception, that you rather have to think about ethical universalism, about a government which is impartial and fair and treats everybody equally and promotes equality of opportunity as not only the exception, but the result of a very long evolution and that simply the way the world worked and the state worked, the state worked like this, the state worked fairly well for people connected with authority, then it worked less well, but still it delivered some public services for people who are able to pay an extra tax, a bribe, in order to get this. And then it didn't really work at all. It was entirely unpredictable and discretionary for people who were neither connected or who didn't have money to pay a bribe. And I realized the overwhelming importance, I thought it's just in the communist world, to be honest at the time, of connections versus bribe. The fact that, in fact, connections were like three times more important than bribes or more. Okay, but this was a survey on administrative practices. It was not about grand corruption. And then I just started to present this paper for one or two years. And when presenting these papers, and in the same time as an activist, I was involved into promoting transparency laws in all these countries so I could actually study the effect of transparency and how how it changed countries or it didn't change countries and why I promoted transparency law from my own country into six seven different countries so I was you know putting civil society coalitions together and also studying I've done a lot of live experiments you see I'm a psychologist so I was you know doing and uh, organizing you know observations in the same time as I was doing things but what really pushed me forward is the fact that presenting this Balkan paper uh, in various you know academic conferences people just came to me people came to me from Asia people came to me from Latin America from Africa from Turkey from absolutely all over the world and they're saying what country are you talking about I say I am talking about southeastern Europe I had five countries said no you're wrong you are talking about my country you know and I heard this not once but 10 times and then I said gosh I really you know hit into something big here it seems to be like an underlying theory of corruption here so I really need some money to do a global survey or to work more on global surveys and to uncover this and yes i was lucky enough actually to um, to get together with Bur Rothstein this big project the anticorp and uh, anticorp really allowed me to become a global scholar also i had the idea of looking at countries which succeeded so i very fast realized that there are no successful transi- transitions mm-hmm. meanwhile uh, i read also douglas north which was advancing to fairly similar conclusions i mean people who are more senior but in the same time they were not directly concerned with corruption but what i got out of them as most important conclusions is that there were basically very few or no transitions from this regime based on patrimonialism to a regime based on open access or ethical universalism so i said all right uh, i need to get some cases of people who did this i already you know by statistics you can very very fast figure out what of the current instruments of corruption don't work. But more interesting for us has always been what works, not only what doesn't, you know, it's very easy to explain why governance is lagging and institutions don't change, all right? But how to change them? This is how in nations fail vale, Acemoglu and Robinson end. They basically say, oh, okay, I mean, prosperity will come when you manage to transit from, uh, from extractive institutions to inclusive institutions. Yes, but how to do that? How to do that? And I only was able to find about you know 10 cases that I suspected are contemporary success cases for the past 40 years. And when I looked at them more attentively, I had to drop at least three, so I was down to seven cases. And then I said, you know, seven cases are just not enough. Uh, I really, really need to do more into the historical cases. And then I came up with the idea that I have to have two sets of cases, a set of historical transitions, countries which reach the good equilibrium control of corruptions in earlier times and the set of contemporary cases. And this is what came in my first uh, report for the Norwegian government. I think it was NORAD and then in my book, A Quest for Good Governance, these complete reflections on transitions. And then later on, I published a sequence with, uh, with Michael Johnson because we wanted to give the, the country authors the opportunity to do even more in-depth process tracing, you know, because I put all this in one book and then I published a book on just these cases. And this basically allowed me to have, uh, I guess, you know, I mean, I'm one of the few people who looked at all the transitions from all over the the world, you know, so I got past this empirical studies based on statistics into the process tracing of countries. I was, I'm married with a historian this helped also.
0: So, um, I, this work that you've done, for those of our listeners who haven't seen it already, I highly recommend it. I, I, I found it very influential in my own thinking about these issues. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the kinds of things that you found. So, a lot of what you said resonated with me when people said you could have been talking about my country from Asian Latin America. If, someone, if there was a time machine, I think someone from Sweden or the United States who was from 200 years ago could have been in the audience too and said, you're talking about my country as well. I suppose the the fact that you you look historically and you see these transitions, there's an optimistic or a pessimistic way to interpret it. Optimistic seems to suggest the transitions are possible, even though we don't have many contemporary success stories. Every country today that's achieved some measure of what you would call ethical universalism or uh, North Wallace and Weingast might call open access orders achieved that transition because they all started from a situation of particularism or, or closed access. But the pessimistic view, I suppose, is these historical studies often took decades or centuries under very different conditions. And a lot of people today in parts of the world that feel like they want to make this transition would say, we don't have the luxury of taking the path that Denmark or Sweden took. How does this help us today? So can you talk a little bit more So, on two aspects of this, both say a little bit more about what Common features, if any, you see in that process of transition in the historical cases. And to what extent do those historical cases hold lessons for countries today like Romania or like Indonesia or South Africa or Brazil or whatever? Is there anything they can learn from them other than it's possible?
1: So what can I say? Yes, people demand for good governance has never been higher and people are losing patience. And the fact that they're losing patience you see in places like brazil where people really go for for very strange electoral options but they just you know are really really fed up with the, with this uh, promise that young democracies do not manage to keep the promise of ethical universalism now there are two ways of getting to a regime closer to ethical universalism nobody has really gotten there and i think there's a lot of backsliding that these days we actually see in uh, in old democracies like the United States, but not only, like many European countries there were. So the two ways of getting there are, one of them is basically through enlightened despotism. At a certain moment, uh, kings need to perform. They need to perform generally military, and when they need to perform, they really need to create merit-based institutions. And in order to defend the state from captures, which tend to be their own aristocracy and other people who historically didn't pay taxes and they were losing wars because they were incompetent. And then they need, and then what the kings do, I mean, the king of Denmark, for instance, I worked with this Danish historian to to put this story out. What the king of Denmark did is that he invested into creating a merit-based bureaucracy to use against the captors, so to put it. So in other words, the autonomous bureaucracy, which we all want, but which seem to be a rarity really these days, because most of administrations around the world are so politicized and are so much there as simply to be part of a pyramid of extractions to which the rulers, either elected or non-elected, are on top that we should not even call them bureaucracies. They're not bureaucracies by Weberian standards. So we should really be very economical with the use of term of of administrative corruption or bureaucratic corruption. These are not bureaucracies, you know. These are just pyramids of extractions very similar to how the state was historically. They have not yet passed the threshold when the state is independent from private interest. And this threshold, you pass it easily if you have a monarch who wants a state to use for control. Alright, and this is if you look at ICRG Bureaucratic Quality Indicator which is one of the few evaluations that we have, it's an expert's call, but still uh, you see that in the last 10 years in fact it is only monarchies which have made a little bit of progress, Qatar, United Arab Emirates on the quality of bureaucracies. While, in fact, as a very old paper of Samuel Eisenstein, but a very brilliant paper actually predicted, while in democracies, in fact, the quality of bureaucracy goes down and down because what Democrats do, they tend to politicize bureaucracy, right, to use it for their own ends. So this path, this enlightened despotive path, is only accessible to the Gulf countries. And if they want to follow on this path, you know, gradually to create this merit-based civil service, Very good. And to limit whoever is above the law there, you know, very good. And then in a second stage, the monarchy will become more constitutional and more accountable. And, you know, that's a very good pathway there. But for most countries, which are already democracies in the, you know, environment of systemic corruption today, we have twice as many democracies than autocracies. We have over 100 systematically corrupt democracies and only 40 something autocracies. So what to do in democracies? In democracies, I think it is the American model which comes close. And the American model, you as Americans know better than anyone else, that it's a very gradual model. It takes a lot of time. It takes decades to depoliticize, for instance, the civil service and to build a more independent judiciary. And here is where we are in all these countries. Now, what I do in order to encourage people and myself, I do this prediction which is roughly based on modernization theory. So modernization theory works by 50%. We can predict 50% of cases of the world, of the quality of governance, if we know human development index of, of the countries. Okay, but in this circumstance we are still left with 50% outliers, of which some are negative outliers, they're doing tremendously wrong compared to what they could deliver as potential. And you've heard of all of them, I mean they're very famous outliers. They're former Soviet Union countries, it's Argentina. Uh, Mexico and, of course, Italy and Greece, you know, the notorious countries which should be doing better, but they're doing worse. And on the positive outliers, there are all the outliers in my book, so you would find there uh, Chile, Uruguay, uh, but also New Zealand and other, and some, some of the Scandinavian countries, which are doing even better than they should seeing their human development resources. Now, what comes out of my process tracing in the success cases is that basically the delivery comes to elites which are prepared. They know how to reform their societies. They know where the rents are, who the gatekeepers are, and how what to change in that and eventually windows of opportunities when they come. These windows of opportunity may be very strange. I mean, what I found is that actually successions of dictatorships and democracy delivered each a part of the chain. But the important thing is that under each regime there is somebody who reflects on what is to be done because it's not so obvious as people imagine. It's not so obvious. You simply have to remove rents and you simply have to gradually reduce power discretion over these economic privileges in society. But then, if you have windows of opportunity and you don't know what to do, a lot of windows of opportunity are wasted, you know. And I work currently in Peru, a country which had like tremendous windows of opportunity, and they always seem to be wasted, which is terrible, because also the will to do something is there, you see that it is there. But also, I must say that, you know, we shouldn't give people false hopes. None of my, uh, of my success stories was as corrupt to start with as was Romania at the beginning of the 90s. None of them. Okay, the only one which I like, and that's why I think it is a good example, is Georgia. Georgia was indeed a terrible country with all the possible problems in the world. You know, It had a problem of controlling... Government. So it was a post-conflict society. It was not in full control of its society. It was a post-Soviet country. Uh, it had oligarchs. It had the KGB infiltration. I mean, it had all the negative conditions in the world. And still, still an enlightened elite led by a leader, um, somebody... Able to you know to to solve collective action problems because that's what it is about and leadership helps a lot. They were able to deliver a lot in this country. How sustainable Georgia is, I don't know. These days it is backsliding, but I really think that if they, from their very constrained situation, they could do all these reforms. Everybody can look at what they did and find inspiration.
0: So I want to pick up on a, a couple of themes in in the, those very interesting comments. The idea that. Progress often takes a long time. You emphasize at several points that it's gradual. That in the U.S. it takes decades. That there are windows of opportunity that you never know when they're going to come. But I suppose that's the old saying: "Fortune favors the prepared," and you, you have to take them up. Um, that seems to suggest, at least partly, uh, some, the, some part of the advice you would give to countries struggling with this right now is take advantage of your opportunities, but be patient and don't expect that you're going to see a lot of changes all at once. The Georgia example is interesting because that's held up by some people uh, as an example of why you need to move very quickly and that only rapid change can dislodge systemic corruption. As you know, in the anti-corruption field, as in the broader field of economic reform and liberalization, of course, having been directly involved in the the post-communist transitions, you would know this, there's this debate about gradualist approaches to reform, incrementalist approaches to reform, or so-called big push or, or big bang. Uh, and that debate exists with respect to anti-corruption, or I suppose to put it in your language more broadly, moves in the direction uh, from particularism or patrimonialism to ethical universalism. Does your example of a histor- study of the historical cases or the contemporary examples lead you to any conclusions one way or the other about this debate between incrementalists versus big push advocates? Or do you think that that dichotomy is itself misconceived?
1: Uh, well, two points. First, let me just uh, deal in, pa- in passing with this point about uh, reformers and what reformers should do. Well, think like this, you know, in Estonia, which is one of my nicest cases. So I have two bright, small cases. One is Estonia and another one is Uruguay. And I like them both because Estonia is a libertarian success case and Uruguay is a more left leaning success case. So that actually shows that it's not ideology who delivers it. And you can come through fairly different ways to the extent that people who are empowered in a certain historical moment have the knowledge of what it is to be done and they're clean. And this actually uh, happened in both countries. And I love the reformers in both countries very much because they were people who under dictatorship were preparing for this. You know, in Uruguay, they had a think tank which under the military dictators, in fact, thought out most of the reforms which would change Uruguay afterwards. They didn't lose their time when the militaries were losing their country, but they were actually thinking, okay, and presuming history sides with us again. What are the reforms that we should enact in the first 100 days to be sure that never again on the grounds of clientelism and corruption somebody can use this against us and, you know. And uh, in Estonia, the same. You know, they came to government, this tiny party based on former dissidents, with a law of how the government should work and the central administration written by them. They told me they wrote this in a weekend, you know, in a, in a German conference. But you know, they spent a weekend on writing this law and they knew how the state should operate. They were very much held by anti-communists. They knew that the state should operate the opposite of the high power discretion of communist times, okay? So this was a guide for them because otherwise one of the most important things that people should do today in all these countries is this process of administrative simplification, of removing corruption opportunities. But we don't do this. We don't do this because as international consultants for various organizations, we do not know the legislation of this country. To go in Tunisia and know where these things are and to remove them, you really have to research Tunisia. And unfortunately people don't do this, you know, in countries where I know the language, I do extensive focus group and I figure out. But generally locals know only they, you know, they it's this kind of process where if you don't have very high policy formulation capacity, you're going to get also bad international advice, okay? Because you are unable to tell outsiders what you need. And uh, this is why it's quite important that opposition parties, you are in opposition these days, all right? Do you have a similar thing? Do you have the law that you would like to see your government operating on the basis? This is what you should do. This is exactly what you should do. Not go in and the next day you call someone from UNODC and say, send me somebody to create me an anti-corruption agency. That's not going to help. What is going to help is basically this in-depth knowledge of your own government and administration and how you want to change them. Write this when you, uh, you're you free. You know, when you're going to up to government, you're never going to have the time to do this. Now it's a good moment to do this when you're in opposition, right? And as to the, to the opposition between gradualism and Big bank. I mean, windows of opportunities. I mean, anti-corruption is about power. You have to remove power from people who are very strong. Uh, the This, you know, institutional status quo winners, uh, the gatekeepers. Now, these people may choose to give away power step by step, as in the James Robinson model, the British model. But then again, this doesn't happen very frequently. Okay? So there's not a universal answer if you manage... To make them become more inclusive, gradually, very well, you know, definitely do this. You know, that's why I endorse Persons and Tabellini findings on on constitutional monarchies, that it's actually better to have a transition under constitutional monarchy. Go ahead and do it. Only we haven't seen, you know, much, much, much progress in some of these constitutional monarchies. But definitely that's where we should fight. I mean, we should push that Jordan, Morocco and countries like this, which have sufficient legitimacy, that they gradually become more inclusive, all right? Otherwise, fundamentalists are going to win in these countries on grounds of corruption. This is what's going to happen if we, if we don't move ahead. But um, the, the Big Bang, therefore, you know, when people can do a Big Bang, the Big Bang is basically necessary to disrupt the power of the old elite, to push out the old gatekeepers. And Saakashvili did this very well. He didn't go to court, he didn't go to trial, he was criticized for this, but that was the right way to do this. You know, by bargaining, he didn't put people in jail instead of them, you know, paying. The important thing is simply to remove the influence of these people, if you can do. So basically, you have to combine. I mean, I think it is really the the wrong question. First, you never have the choice. (laughs) Choice doesn't present itself. You do it as as you can, okay? But then, uh, you know, just putting some people in jail is not going to solve it. What you have to kill are not the people who have the rents. You have to kill the rents themselves. Because otherwise, Democrats will immediately start exploiting the rents. I mean, rents are so tempting. Look in Ukraine. Several regimes change, and each regime, you know, replaces the old oligarchs with new oligarchs. But oligarchy as, as a system still is there.
0: So I want to um, pick up on another theme you, you mentioned a moment ago, and that has to do with the international community, whether in the form of international consultants doing this in an ad hoc basis, or international institutions like the EU, which obviously has played a very big role in places like Romania, Hungary, Poland, other places in that part of the world, but the IMF, the World Bank, and so forth. And this is something you've written about, sometimes critically. Let's talk folks in the institutions rather than the individual consultants. But what can or should international bodies like the EU, IMF, World Bank, national aid agencies, and so forth do that would be helpful on the anti-corruption good government front and what should they avoid doing because it's either not helpful or actually counterproductive?
1: Well, thank you for this. So I think that um, it's unprecedented involvement of all international organizations against corruption. You know, IMF for the first time has created conditionalities on corruption. This was unheard of before. And in many ways, this is a good thing, but I think we should start by understanding what corruption is. And in my experience, dealing with all this organization, this understanding uh, is largely not there. So no, old time diplomats of the British Empire understood far better what corruption was than quite a significant number of people who have lots of budgets against corruption or for democracy promotion in many countries today. And this is why many blunders exist. I mean, there are situations in which uh, Michael Johnson we do actually more harm than good and that's the first thing that we should actually take care of in anti-corruption is not to make a situation worse. There's a big approach which doesn't work and there are some things which are working which I'm now seeing after my forthcoming book which is coming out end this year from Cambridge also. Which is called Europe's burden, promoting good governance across borders, looks at over 120 cases where EU has some conditionality on okay. corruption. So okay. I looked at quite a lot of of cases in order to understand what goes on. So I think that the wrong thing is this increasing bureaucratic approach on anti-corruption that has is these days coming out out of a lot of organizations, not just EU which is perhaps inherent, seeing that it is promoted by lawyers and you have to adopt a lot of laws in anti-corruption. But what is unbelievable for me is the fact that this unavoidable law adoption, for instance, you definitely have to adopt laws on conflict of interest and enshrine public, public separation. Uh, is the fact that people really believe that this can be called a strategy and it's anything else rather than you know a minimum thing to start for. So these days countries have five years anti-corruption plans. And reports on this anti-corruption, which for me, who survived five years anti-corruption plans under communism, I mean, are completely hilarious. I mean, I read the ones in, uh, in Republic of Moldova, a tiny post-Soviet state, during the 10 years and two, their first two five years anti-corruption plans under EU guidance, with a lot of American involvement, I must say they turned from a plural kleptocracy into a completely monopolistic state captured you know and that is quite a performance while meanwhile achieving everything which is on the strategy you know and i see this is completely completely wrong because it's to- totally ignoring the fact that anti-corruption is a political process and in this political process we have to understand who wins and who loses and how to empower these losers in the same time with the dismantling the rents, so not to transform the losers into new winners. That's the key of it. Now, how much role can an outsider play in this process? Well, not so much. Not so much, but an outsider can create some incentives and disincentives. And this is what we should do. And I think the evidence that I have seen. So so first, the statistical evidence is basically that nothing, uh, no big donor. No first, no bilateral donor has any influence and uh, Second, multilateral EU has some positive general influence without being able to show only one case. And this influence comes down to a few states which have budget support. And I think that what seems to come out as positive is to put a lot of ex-ante conditions. So let's say you want to give grants to municipalities. We support decentralization in a country. Decentralization usually results in more corruption because it's insufficient local civil society or any sort of accountability layers. Uh, why not actually ask these local governments to compete in transparent, open and competitive procurement and make the demonstration before we give them the money, okay? So I give you a billion and it's going to go to the first 20 municipalities which are actually able to, to post their, their procurement allocations and things like this. I mean, if we organize things like this, at least in relation to our own money, I think that we can uh, we will see a little bit more progress. But right now it's, you know, no point in, uh, in saying what we managed to do is that a lot of people have some conflict of interest legislation. But on paper, if you look in practice, they managed to remove everything which was really embarrassing for rents, even if nominally they adopted big packages of conflict of interest legislation. So I think it's wrong to say that the first 10 years of anti-corruption were adopting legislation and the next 10 years is going to close the implementation gap. Yep we're not going to close the implementation gap, because that's about politics. It's not just that they implemented laws, it's just that other things need to happen, and they will naturally happen in some of these societies. You know, We can perhaps prompt them, but the important thing is that these societies have elites which organize themselves to change the rules of the game and we do not disincentivize these elites by five years anti-corruption plans. I've seen countries where nobody does anything. I know these countries from 10-15 years before where there was quite important civil society movement. Now nobody does absolutely anything. Everybody accepts that official anti-corruption delivers. But official anti-corruption delivers only in very easy cases.
0: So, we're, we're nearing the end of our time, but before we close, I want to ask a different kind of question. Uh, many of our listeners are uh, researchers, academics, or others who are interested in working on anti corruption, and I'd be interested in the advice that you would give to the next generation of anti corruption researchers, scholars, and, and others in terms of where, where you think the most important gaps in our understanding are where uh, we, we need more and better research. So I know you probably do this all the time since you work with master's and PhD students all the time, uh, but to reach the maybe somewhat broader audience uh, among our listeners, what would be your advice to an up-and-coming graduate student or, or new assistant professor in terms of the issues and topics to work on where we really need to understand things better?
1: Well, I think uh, I am concerned by the fact that incentives in our profession may be very, very different, actually, in order to get ahead academically uh, from uh, what is really needed in the, in the policy field. That's quite a big gap, a big divorce, and I don't want to give people bad advice for their careers. Now, what I think the middle ground is, I mean, what would really help us? help us understanding and help all the you know diplomats and all this development industry which is and is going to grow so anti-corruption is going to be topical for many years so i think it is a good area for people to orient themselves but on the other hand i think that people should uh, sort of give up trying to come with some definitive answers to all anti-corruption questions and to some big theory and really advance our understanding of how anti-corruption and politics go, go together. And the more this is tied to a specific continent or the more this is tied to a specific country, I mean returning to some very good country studies, I mean some of the Most universal answers that I read about political accountability or about the importance of normative constraints of civil society come from country studies in Brazil or in Mexico because they had very good in-depth data, but in the same time people who wrote these papers understood those countries and their political dynamics very well. And that's what we need. I think we no longer need papers from people who don't know any country well and don't understand any country well but they claim to find universal solutions by doing you know comparative
0: research it's fascinating because what you're describing makes it sound like almost you're seeing the research coming full circle because you describe your own career as starting out focused on a particular country or region um, and from that you realized that some of the themes you were seeing there were far more general which pushed push you to a more global conception uh, of broad universal themes but at this stage it sounds like you're saying the way to move forward is to move back towards uh, more individualized country-focused studies to really understand the particularities. so in this movement that we're always making is scholars and researchers between the particular and the general it sounds like you started particular and then went general and now feel like we've taken the general thing is uh, to the point where now we need to get back and be really particular again is would that be a fair characterization of yes, the absolutely. cycle you just described
1: absolutely absolutely i mean we're never going to have more consensus now than the one which is not always a knowledge, but in my opinion exists across North and his team and Fukuyama and his people and Acemoglu and Robinson and their people. So even if even if people don't acknowledge this, in fact, there is an absolute consensus on the fact that this, that ethical universalism has to be built. That is the sense of history. And that I think it is important consensus which didn't exist before. And basically on this continuum between open access and, uh, and closed access and limited access. So, you know, the essentials, the fundamentals of the theory were discovered. Okay, let's move on into understanding change and how to engineer change. That is actually important for the societies.
0: That seems like the perfect inspiring note on which to end this conversation. Thank you again for taking the time to share your experience and your insights with me and with all of our listeners. Again, my guest today has been Alina Munju Pipiti of the Hurdi School of Governance. Uh, again, it's, it's my great pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for reaching out.